Beautiful. Well, here we are once again. <laughs> we lost all our. We can give it. Let's give it another like couple minutes, maybe or, or not. You want to just start? It says four people are watching at the moment. So yeah, one of them is me, and three, and one of them is me. One yeah. of them is me. It's fine. One of them we is Navalo Kiteshvara. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we can just. What? What's interesting is this one actually, this stream seems to actually be pushing my microphone upwards. Yeah, it's yeah. because it's, it's, it's normalizing it in real time. But you know what? Hey, what's up, yogurt? Uh, let's start talking Buddhism so the people who tune in will realize we're not just sticking around anymore. Yep. Okay, let's do that. So, DK, why don't you just treat this as your stream and do the intro as usual? So, hello, everyone, and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squad's episode of Buddhism 101, Basic Buddhism. I want to thank everyone in the live audience for sticking with us uh, through some technical difficulties. We should be back, hopefully, next week or with some slightly higher quality audio. I have I tried to do an ambitious thing. It almost worked, and, and it will work next time. In the meantime, I uh, hope you enjoy this stream. And yeah, we wanted to get started. Um, we have some lovely, uh, cozy, comfy uh, guitar music from Storm's Friend in the background. But um, we thought, you know, it, it, for this uh, stream, we, I guess, kind of started, uh, this stream meaning this program, Right Wing Dharma Squads, we, we started at a kind of um, high level in terms of familiarity with Buddhism, um, just kind of uh, talking in, in terms of our own experience, uh, which, you know, it's not like we're experts or anything necessarily, but we do, I guess, have more experience than random people. And um, as this has developed, uh, and, and we've acquired some, some audience and some, you know, some people are interested, which is great. Um, we've gotten a fair amount of people who are also curious about, you know, well, I don't know that much about Buddhism. I haven't, I, you know, I haven't learned that much or, or, you know, what is even going on. And so uh, maybe a little bit belatedly, but nevertheless, we thought it was a good opportunity to go through some of the basic, um, the, the history of Buddhism, the, you know, the, the basic foundations in terms of doctrine and philosophy, and maybe also use that as an, as a way to, I mean, I was thinking to talk about, you know, why why we're doing this program the way we're doing it, why um, why there is a why the idea of right wing Dharma squads, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but why why is that maybe a more authentic? I would say, uh, I would certainly say, expression of the Buddha Dharma than whatever it is. Like we talked about in the California Dharma episode, you know, and, and whatever you might see in the popular discourse, um, I, I think it's um, worth investigating in, in those ways but but uh aura i know you had some things you wanted to say to start with if you wanted to, to kick it off yeah you know what you said about uh, the way we just sort of jumped into the deep end with our topic which is buddhism viewed broadly from the right um you know i hadn't even we, we set up to do this episode and i hadn't even really considered that and you're absolutely right we jumped into some topics that were uh, topical, uh, that were newsworthy. And then we talked about some rather, you know, arcane stuff at, at certain points. And then we did our three week dive into Julius Avalon and everything. And like you said, we've had requests from people to sort of address the basics. And uh, just to draw back the curtain for our listeners here, 
we were talking about, you know, how do we even do the basics um, in a one hour, one hour and a half show? Um, and so what we decided is that there, there's certain things that are definitely basic that we're definitely going to hit today. Um, but we, the gradation line, there's no, there's no line that can be drawn between beginning Buddhism and intermediate Buddhism or whatever. Um, that's not really how it works. So to allow ourselves the freedom to begin to discuss this without worrying so much about whether we're doing it exactly right, we're going to hit the very basics that we absolutely know we need to hit. And then we're going to let ourselves branch off into things that are very important, but may not be considered, you know, 101 or whatever. Um, and if we miss anything, we can come back and address it later. So um, to give an overview of what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to talk about the life of the Buddha. We're going to talk about the very basic core doctrine of Buddhism. And we're also going to talk about the historical spread of Buddhism and the, the two major schools that evolved um, historically. Um, and along the way, there's a lot of little details we're obviously going to hit. And like I said, inevitably, there's going to be some some things that we miss and not just little details. We're probably going to miss some really important stuff. But for our listeners, um, this serves two purposes. One, for people that are just getting started, it lets you know, um, you know where you stand. And two, um, it also helps us to sort of <laughs> focus on uh, what is it about the Dharma that we find so important? Uh, because once you get beyond, say, the Four Noble Truths, and even within a discussion of the Four Noble Truths, you start to discover uh, the parts of the Dharma that um, really uh, seem relevant to us today and in our particular situation. So I guess that's my my grand overview. I. I think what we should do here, and we don't have to start immediately, but I think we should do a brief life of the, of the Buddha and uh, and then the, the Four Noble Truths, and then from there, we can go wherever. Yeah, that also, that sounds great. Is that, does that mean it's my turn? To... Yeah, yeah, keep going. <laughs> keep going. I have a little less knowledge about this stuff. I think you guys probably know more on this side of, the, of it, so... Yeah, Storm, you beat me to the punch by saying that, man. I think each one of each one of the four of us, uh, uh, even our erudite friend uh, Dharma Kirti, probably wishes we could be the one to be like, you guys, you guys tell it, because uh, yeah, pressure's on when we're when we're expounding the Dharma, and none of us are uh, masters or anything. But we know a little bit, so we're gonna do our best, and we're gonna share with you. So <clears throat> the Buddha was a real historical figure. There's no, um, you know, there's no argument about that. You know. There, there are his, there are religious figures such as uh, I don't know Mithras, for example, uh, that people can say I don't know did that guy really exist or not? Who knows? Uh, the Buddha is like, for example, Muhammad. He's he's totally unlike Muhammad, but <laughs> he's like Muhammad in the sense that the that the fact that he existed is not in question uh, for serious scholars. So the Buddha lived in northern India, right up against what's modern day Nepal, the very north of India around about 500 years before Christ, 500 to 600 years, um, perhaps. Well, probably more like four to 500, but yeah, I mean- Oh, it, thank you, thank yeah, you, yeah, 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 thank you. Um, so given our current year, uh, that we live in the current year, uh, that's about uh, 2,500 years ago. And um, he was a prince of the highest caste um, of his society at the time. His father was a king, a local king. He wasn't the, like the king of India or anything, but he was the king of his, local area, 
and uh, the Buddha was his um, his son, and so the Buddha was going was named. Uh, well, I don't know actually. How should we say like uh, Gotama Shakyamuni or not Shakyamuni? Uh, Siddhartha Gotama. How, how would you say DK? Uh, Siddhartha Gautama, yeah. Gautama, yeah. Shakyamuni means, I mean, Shakyamuni means of the Shakya clan, if I recall correctly, because that yeah, was the means, name of means, his. Yeah, sage, that's, that's sage right. of this. That's a title that he got later, yeah. So he was of the Shakya clan. Uh, Shakyamuni is a title that he got later uh, once he became a great teacher. So anyway, um, the Buddha, the, the, the broad strokes of the Buddha's life uh, that are important for the religion um, are that he lived a... a a very charmed life. He he had a very um, blessed life and had more or less everything you could ask for uh, on the mundane level. Uh, and that um, the legend is that uh, one day he left the palace um, and he went about the town and saw. Um, I won't try to put it poetically or anything. He saw a he saw old age. He saw sickness and he saw death. And, and, and he, real quick, before this had happened, his father and the people that were under his father had tried to hide those things from him. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the legend is that, that he like, had never seen these things. The, um, the, the, the legend was that his father had, he, after he was born, he was foretold by some kind of holy man that either he would grow up to become a great king or if he had discovered the problem of suffering would go out and become this extraordinary holy man. And so his father, wanting him to follow in his footsteps and become a great king, hid him away in the palace and tried to hide every aspect of suffering away from him. Right. Yes. So eventually this curious uh, prince um, sort of snuck out of the palace and was guided around the, the greater city or, or countryside and everything. And he saw what any of us can see in, in life, which is that um, old age is is very terrible com compared to young age on the physical level and that uh, sickness is awful compared to health and that death uh, awaits us all and that um, uh, dying is awful and it's terrible for the person who dies and it's terrible for the loved ones of that person. And uh, Siddhartha was so stricken by this, he was so upset by this that he, uh, and again, I'm giving the short version, but uh, he he basically made a vow that he was not going to rest until he found um, an answer to sickness, aging, and death. So there's various episodes that happen on this, but uh, the core of the story is that the Buddha went out. He renounced his um, his role as prince. He renounced uh, all his riches and and his family. Indeed, he was married. He had a one son, um, and left to become a wandering monk. And the important thing is that in India at this time, uh, that sort of the wandering wise man was a was a feature of society. Um, so, which is actually, it's an interesting um, parallel to the, to the life of Christ because most people who study the uh, ancient Near East at the time of Christ understand that Jesus was not the only one uh, going around and giving teachings. Um, so, it wasn't necessarily so much giving teachings in um, North India at this time, but uh, it, it, there was a sort of a tradition of, um, yeah, of the, of the holy man that that lived on his own. Also, so. yeah, re real quick, we have a question from Carson. As I thought, the Buddha was a kshatriya, not a Brahmin. Yes, that is correct. The Buddha was not a Brahmin. He was a he was a kshatriya warrior caste or or nobleman type figure. He was not um, 
that, yeah, that's good, actually important for like a, maybe to give also a little bit of historical context. Um, so the the religion, the religious system that existed at the time of the Buddha around 500 years before Christ was um, centered around. Well, it had been centered around Vedic sacrifice, which is this whole big, interesting topic on its own that we, I won't go into much detail on, except to note that, of course, it was the sacrificial religion of the Aryan invaders um, coming from probably what's now um, uh, the modern-day Caucasus region, Georgia, and so on, and that um, these people uh, had and set up this kind of fire sacrifice um, religion and this whole kind of elaborate system based around it uh, with themselves as the priestly caste to some extent on top. And so as Indian history progresses, um, and this is really true up in some ways through the modern day, uh, the, the sacrificial aspects of religion came to be more and more um, centered around the veneration of the Brahmin caste it, it, to the extent that it was even kind of, you could, you could one kind of synonym, synonym that you could say would be Brahmanism, that this kind of, um, the ritual authority of Brahmins was really central. But this was starting to break down. There's a, there's a, the, the comparison to Jesus is quite apt, as is the comparison to Socrates, because all these figures are within a couple of hundred years of each other. And it's, it's some, for that reason, this has been called the axial age, where a lot of important developments in human history were happening. And one of the things going on was kind of at a social, economic, cultural level for reasons that we don't completely understand, but the the effects are pretty clear, is that there was a breakdown in the in the religious system, in the in the authority of Brahmins. And this is why you had this so-called Shramana movement, of which the Buddha was a part, but by no means the only one, of strivers, of Shramana, of Shramanas, of people who were looking for answers outside of the existing system of Vedic sacrifice and, and the attendant cosmology. So um, you had the, the, after the Buddha saw these, these visions of these, uh, well, he had this experience. You should, I, I should say not visions in like a visionary sense, but he like physically saw. Um, so the story goes, you know, an old man and a dying person and a sick person and so on um, that he was like, well, this sucks. And I'm going to go out looking for, you know, how how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this trap of suffering? And he fell in with other people who were, you know, kind of hanging out in the forest, in the jungle, um, looking to to escape this this uh, this this cycle. And they were not brought. I mean, that was, the whole thing was they were doing their thing kind of independently of the Brahmanical establishment. Um, same thing with Mahavir, the founder of uh, the Jain religion, who is, which is a very similar religion to Buddhism in a lot of ways, not the least of which is the, found, the founder of, the, of Buddhism and the founder of Jainism lived at the same time. Their, their followers knew each other. They may have interacted at some point. We don't really know. Um, and both of them, like many other people at the time, were kind of looking to... Um, they, they realized that the existing ritual cosmological scheme was not doing its job. It was not sufficient. It was not up to the task of solving the problem of suffering, which to be fair, and this is a point I've made in regard to other forms of pagan, what I would call paganism, um, you know, paganism that it doesn't concern itself with that, you know, non um, soteriological religion. I mean, there's ritual forms of ritual practice, and you could even say religion that aren't really concerned with ultimate salvation, um, which 
really at that point what you could you know what we would now call hinduism which is kind of an anachronism it's really more accurate to say brahmanism or, or vedic sacrificial religion or whatever um was not concerned with kind of ultimate soteriological end to the to the problem of suffering that was not really on on the radar even and and the for the buddhas meant that or for the first at that point siddhartha this meant that something had to be done that we we we, we weren't going to look for answers in beta in in the sacrificial religion we were going to look for them elsewhere and and this is a constant theme constant theme in in the buddha's tradition and in particular in the indian buddhist tradition where, where you know it was um they were constantly up against what you what you could call hindus or or, or people who followed the vedas there was this really really um important issue of you know what can rituals do what can ritual action accomplish because from a vedic perspective ritual action is is all you need to do you just do the ritual you do the vedic sacrifice and that's it um from a buddhist perspective that is not the case there's more to it than that and uh and yeah so but i just wanted to put all that out there no it's excellent um yeah, so that stems again from Carson's excellent question. I thought the Buddha was a Kshatriya and not a Brahmin. And that refers to, for our listeners, again, this is 101, so we're going to get as basic as possible. That refers to the, the caste. So the Brahmins were the priest caste, and the Kshatriya were sort of the warrior king class. And classically, in Indian um, society, the Brahmins were above were a higher caste than the Kshatriyas. So when I said the, the yeah, Buddha was considered up, the head and the Kshatriyas, the arms, and uh, I'm uh, blanking on the mercantile. Me too. I, was, I hope so funny. you were going to save me. Shudras uh, are the, are, are the, the, the untouchable. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's it, yeah. we, we have a lot to hit in this in this uh, episode, so we'll, we'll keep moving. So that's, a, that's an excellent question. That's right. The Vaishyas are, are artisans and, and, and um, merchants. And they're considered like the torso or the thighs or something. And this is like according to the con a traditional conception of like society or, or yeah. again, this gets back to stuff that we already talked about with like, I mean, this yeah. is a, Indian religion is, is a huge topic. I don't want to go too much into it, but there's a lot there. The point is, yeah, there's this kind of interesting dynamic between the the Kshatriyas and the Brahmins. The Brahmins are the ritual experts and, and kind of religious authorities. Kshatriyas tend to be the political authorities. Um, there's a fairly strict division of labor in Indian society that again persists really from the time of the Buddha and before all the way through the present day. That's yeah. all. So uh, against this background with uh, with this story behind him, the Buddha went out um, and started studying with different teachers. And again, I, uh, I feel an awful, I usually feel very relaxed on this podcast. And right now I feel a lot of pressure to get all these details right. So please forgive me if I'm giving the, the cliff note version. Um, yeah, so the Buddha basically tried all different kinds of religious practices, and the penultimate thing that he tried was very austere, very severe um, self-mortification, starving himself, sitting in painful positions for um, hours or days on end. Um, really, you know, he starved himself. He 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 was trying to basically. Um, maybe destroy the body while still alive and, and see if see if that would work. Um, and he had a sort of pre-enlightenment um, upon seeing, there's different versions of this story, but uh, uh, a maid by the, uh, a milkmaid by the side of a river and she offered him a bowl of milk or rice milk. I, I, there's different versions, but. Yeah, also she, in the, the kind of classic version of this story, she thought he was, she, she actually offered him a bowl of rice porridge because she thought he was a ghost. 
and it was like a thing that you did if you saw a ghost um, that, you know, you sort of took pity on them by offering them this kind of rice porridge. And, and it was this moment for the Buddha where he was, or the future Buddha where he was like, oh man, she thinks I'm a ghost. <laughs> like I'm so emaciated and sickly um, yeah. that, you know, this is how I appear. And it was, it was, it was a wake up moment. It was like, well, this, whatever it is that I'm doing right now, this is not, this is not sufficient to the task. This is not going to get me where I want to be. A small detail that has always kind of struck me visually is that um, it, I've read that when this happened, when she saw him, there was actually moss growing on parts of his body. That's how intense oh, wow. it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a very D and D character detail moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> this yeah. is my monk. <laughs> it just, it struck me when I read that I was so have a, a big uh, wow moment. So the Buddha accepted the, the nourishment um, and nursed himself back to health and then sat down um, under what's well, called the Bodhi tree. Um, he sat down under a tree uh, at the beginning of the evening and vowed that he would not get up until he had broken the bonds of, of death, essentially. And it's told that throughout that night, um, in over the course of one night, he went through several increasing stages of, um, of, yeah, increasing enlightenment, um, and that he lived through all of his past lives over the course of one night. That he was tempted by the the great uh, mythological tempter, um, and that uh, he was able to overcome all of these things and keep persisting on his path so he didn't get caught up in seeing his past lives he didn't get up get caught up in in fighting with the tempter all of these things he kept he kept persevering and that at the end of the night uh, as the day was dawning he reached um total enlightenment or the state of what's called in uh buddhism nirvana uh, which there's many different ways to translate, and we, I, I don't think we should get too deep into defining nirvana on this on this podcast. It's probably well. A whole the, the simplest thing to say is, I mean, again, just to to speak in terms of these um, pre-existing, because it's you have to understand Buddhism in the context of Indian religion and society at the time. the The idea was karmic, right? The fundamental idea of nirvana is karmic. Is that like, why is there why is there suffering is because there's a cycle of suffering. We'll get into this in a second with the Four Noble Truths as well. But the point is, like, the Vedic sacrificial religion. So when you're talking about ritual, like, the in a sense, one of the words for ritual is just the word for action, which is karma. Like, you, that's what you're doing is at Kriya is the Sanskrit te technical word, but it's the same root and kind of the same meaning as as karma. It's just another way to say action. Um, so when you're saying kriya, what you mean is ritual action often. And the, the problem kind of from a kind of philosophical or metaphysical perspective is when you're doing kriya, right, when you're doing an action, a ritual action or any kind of action, there's an intention. There's, you know, some kind of like there's a there's a force in your mind that's doing it and it's having certain effects. And as long as that's operative, then you're still um you're still caught in the cycle because your your action is creating effects and those effects are leading you to do new actions, which are creating new effects and on and on and on. This is why, so I mentioned the Jains earlier. For the Jains, karma is something something physical. Karma, and, and so the way that they think that you attain enlightenment is by those kind of extreme mortification practices that the Buddha rejected. 
Uh, and, and because the more that you like, the best thing you can do as a Jane is basically starve yourself to death because that's how you finally just eliminate all this karma that's clinging on to you. Um, from, from, you know, from a quote unquote Hindu perspective, it's a little different, but the fundamental problem is when you're talking about Nirvana, what you're talking about, this is why the, the, the kind of like people say extinguishment, this sounds often nihilistic to people, but it's not nihilistic at all. Um, but the, the, the idea is basically that you, you have karma and you, you've reached the extinction of karma. It's not the extinction of your mind. It's not the extinction of, it's not like extinction in the sense of release, release, is release. The best word yeah. For, yeah. That's another, it's another great. Yeah. But the point yeah. is that you're, you're, you're no longer, you're no longer creating new karma. You're no longer experiencing new karma. There's no, there's no more karma. There's no, the, the, that has been extinguished. And the mechanism that that works on is that there's no more delusion. Like my, the best way I would I would choose to explain Nirvana would be, uh, it's it's when there's no more delusion, and so that's when you're freed from all those things, no more attachment, no more delusion. That's good, and so I think um, we should move on to the four noble truths. Um, if you guys are okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. yeah. Well, well, maybe we got to finish the story. So, yeah. well, or do you want to? Yeah, don't finish the story then. Yeah. Okay. So, so after, after he, after the Buddha, um, had this moment of like, oh shit, I look like a ghost. He went to, this is my, I mean, this is the best part is I'm getting all choked up thinking about it. He, uh, he's like, okay, well, um, you know, I tried, I, I lived the life of indulgence. It wasn't really what I wanted it to be. It didn't obviously solve anything. I did the extreme mortification thing. I tried to get rid of my karma by starving myself and that didn't work either. Um, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do exactly, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And so he sat down uh, on the ground in front of a tree that's now known as the Bodhi tree. And you can visit it in Bodhgaya and in India, Vajrasana and in, in, by the later, the Vajra seat. And, um, he said, you know, I am going to, to finally once and for all win <laughs> uh, I'm going to solve this problem once and for all, or I'm going to die trying, but one way or the other, I'm going to do it. And there's this whole kind of elaborate thing um, that I don't know all the details of, because it's, it's a bigger deal in Theravada Buddhism about sort of what happened um, at each part of the night. Um, and it said that he like basically um, saw there's like uh, different kind of layers and he got progressively deeper in four phases through, through the night, but basically overnight um, he, he um he got deeper and deeper and deeper and, and saw and, and and within his mind within the nature of mind within the nature of reality uh at various points also he was the attacked by spirits uh demons maras they're called like these death spirits that tried to um distract him these are often represented iconographically as like young women um you know sexy women trying to distract him from the path but he was Thoughts. absolutely adamant sorry Thoughts, yes, Thoughts. the thought problem. Thoughts, yeah, so, absolutely. And um, but he said, no, I'm. This is not. This is not how it's going to be. And he, uh, the one, one of the most kind of um, iconic moments also is at the kind of climax. He he touched uh, his hand to the ground and said, "As the earth is my witness, I will accomplish this." And um, finally, as dawn broke, uh, he. There's different. I mean, there's different kind of theological you could say explanations but basically he attained full and complete buddhahood and that was it and he broke once and for all the um the chains of suffering and and broke the cycle of rebirth and was a full and complete and perfect buddha um 
And, you know, the first, his immediate reaction when just getting now into the Four Noble Truths bit was basically, of course, one of, they, they say, one of relief. I mean, the extent to which, like, emotions and stuff apply to Buddhas is kind of an interesting philosophical question that we can handle on a not 101 episode. But in any case, um, he, the story is basically that he didn't, he initially didn't want to teach. He was like, no, who can understand this? What I've understood now. No one. No one. Who can, I mean, how could I possibly do this? Um but then um, he went to he basically the uh, I forget if it's a, they, he was initially visited or he went straight up. But basically he traveled to one of the heavens. There's many heaven realms. And he went to one of the God realm, heaven realm places. And um, the gods there were like, please, please teach us. You know, we're gods, But one of the one of these days, we're not going to be gods because in Buddhism, it's understood that every karmic situation is temporary. However good your life is, however bad your life is, everything is temporary. And that includes godhood. Gods live a very long time. They're very powerful, but their status as gods is temporary. And, and the gods, some of them know that. And so they were like concerned about, you know, well, what's going to happen when we're no longer gods? So Indra and Brahma and all the kind of Hindu pantheon, like begged the Buddha for instruction, like, please, please, please teach. And finally, after multiple requests, um, he's like, okay, fine, I'll teach. And so he traveled to Sarnath in um, outside Varanasi, the kind of uh, the second major, um, or I should say third major Buddhist pilgrimage site after Lumbini in modern day Nepal, where he was born, and Bodh Gaya in modern day India and Bihar, uh, where he attained enlightenment. Um, the third major site is Sarnath, where he first taught the Dharma. And what he taught was the Four Noble Truths. You know, that's one of the coolest things about Buddhism is uh, is that is that detail that you you added there, Dharmakirti, about um, the gods themselves begging him to yeah. teach, right? Yeah, I love that. It's, I love that bit. Yeah, it, it's funny sometimes because people talk about Buddhism as if it's um, oh, it's just a philosophy. It's not a religion because you know it's not a um, a god worship based religion like you know Islam or Christianity or whatever. And that's true as far as it goes. But um, you know, for those of us who uh, practice the Dharma and think the Buddha is the best and everything, you know, it's like, it's not, uh, not a religion because it's, um, somehow less ambitious than the other ones. It's more ambitious, right? It's like, I, you know, it's, it's achieving a release that even the gods themselves, uh, wish that they could learn. Right. Yeah. So I think the term that sometimes gets thrown around is it's almost trans theistic in a way, as opposed to just it's 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 not theistic because it tries to go beyond that on a metaphysical level. We, we can I, I, these are all great theological issues for yes. for a future episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah the, one, not, the one thing I wanted to, that, that I did want to point out here is like you know on a similar note or to what you were saying, like um, you could put on your kind of critical theory, you know, modern academic professor hat and be like, or I well. Could not. Well, you're right, but if someone could be like, well, what he's doing, what what the tradition is saying rhetorically with that is that it's occupying a higher, it's basically a dig, you know, it's a flex on Hinduism. Yeah. It's like, you think yeah. Indra's so great, well, he's begging the Buddha. And there's something, to me, it's like a both-and situation. It's like, yeah, obviously the tradition, or the tradition is doing that, but it's all it's doing that because it's true. Like, yeah, I, I, that, that, the fact you know, that it's doing that is so much less interesting than the reasons for which exactly. It's doing that. Exactly. Even more, I mean, even more, on like a really autistic detail level, it was actually Brahma Sampati who was the one who was asking him to teach, as opposed to Brahma, the one whose Hindus perceive as the creator deity. Thank you for that. <laughs> so it's, the four noble truths. Um, go ahead, Storm. Interesting detail when when this when this story was recounted to me by the teacher that I had, um, when he attained enlightenment, 
uh, in this, so this story is coming to me like through that particular school, through the person who taught my teacher and, and so on, so on down the lineage is that he laughed at that moment and the laugh caused an earthquake. Which is, Yeah, I've heard which that is, version too. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, I believe in Christianity, there's, there's a thing where right after the crucifixion, Christ goes to hell and yeah, takes it's called people the harrowing out of, of hell. Yeah, the harrowing of hell. Yeah, also calls an earthquake. So just a little yeah. interesting parallel. And in other uh, non-Zen versions of that, it's when he touched the ground, which is what. Yes. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The way so, the way they told me it was the laughter itself was like so strong that it shook the earth. And, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um. So the four noble truths are the core teaching of Buddhism. Uh, and in order for, for people who are listening to this, who are getting started in Buddhism or are curious about it, what does it mean and everything, it's it essentially starts and ends with the Four Noble Truths. And everything else is uh, ways to get at the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are uh, the, sh the extremely short version is suffering, the end of suffering, uh, excuse me, suffering, the cause of suffering the end of suffering and the causes of the ends of suffering. So um, the first noble truth is that the nature of existence is unsatisfactory or it's, it, it's suffering. The second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is clinging uh, or craving or ignorance. Um, the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering. You can actually get out of this loop and the fourth noble truth is the path, the way to achieve that, that um, yeah, the, the end of suffering. So again, suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the causes of the end of suffering. That, that's the core uh, teaching of, the, of, uh, of Buddhism. Okay, Aura, how do I get out of suffering? <laughs> well, the fourth noble truth, uh, and this, I don't know if this is like you're baiting me with Zen. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, I'm just, I'm just uh, being the segue. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that you had to ask yourself that, though. Yeah, well, um, I was actually thinking about this before we started this, this recording. I was wondering uh, how we we're going to deal with this. The fourth noble truth, to me personally, this is Aura talking, not a Buddhist, Buddhism scholar. The fourth noble truth is actually the most relevant one. Um, because it's the Buddha teaching the way to end suffering. And the, the, the contents, if you will, of the fourth noble, fourth noble truth are, is the Eightfold Path. Uh, and the Eightfold Path is eight ways to essentially behave, I suppose you could put it. Um, eight ways to think, um, eight ways to check yourself. Uh, and if you do those eight things, you're on the path and you will achieve the third noble truth, which is the end of suffering. Um, and we can go into detail on the, eight, the eightfold path in a moment, but uh, that's my short answer for you, Star. Very good. Anyone want to jump in here? I've been talking out of school a little bit. Well, the um, traditionally, the... the uh, the truth of suffering is kind of regarded for obvious reasons. It's the first noble truth. Um, and it's the foundation for, for everything. Um, what, what's interesting in my experience is that Westerners often really um, resist this. I think part of it is, 
part of it is this kind of intellectual history of the way that Buddhism was encountered and received in the West and, and sort of portrayed to some extent by Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and so on as um, pessimistic. This word gets, gets kind of bandied about not infrequently, which I personally find hilarious because yeah, no, that's super funny because this is literally like the best possible news you right. can be told. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like a in a sense, you know, gospel means good news, and it's kind of a gospel on steroids in that sense. Um, but but this idea of like, oh, well, life is it's often kind of reduced to, well, life is suffering, and um, I don't know what it is really in the modern psyche that has some kind of problem where they like they just take issue with this, or or it's some kind of terrible problem um, because like. It, I think it's pretty clear, like, if look around. I mean, if, if if you're on the left, especially, like, it should, you know, yeah, life is suffering, right? I mean, what are you getting all worked up about oppression about or something? Um, and and similarly, if, if, if you're on the right, you know, it shouldn't be. But, but for some reason, people have this very strange um, resistance. And, and maybe it's because it gets kind of interpreted or, or to some extent misinterpreted as, you know, life, everything about life sucks and it's all awful and which is not at all what's being said um but even then it's like okay well yeah there's all i mean the the, the the there's there's three kind of um traditional ways that you can talk about suffering and one is just you know suffering um like like when there's pain when there's something that you don't like which isn't which happens kind of um all the time right i mean there's always uh there's always like more there's always something that's going to go wrong. There's always, there's times when we suffer. I mean, it shouldn't be like any kind of uh, surprise to people. And, but then it's like, okay, well, but sometimes I'm happy. And it's like, yes, of course, of course you're some, you're sometimes happy, but that doesn't mean that, um, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to experience it later. And that's what's called the suffering of change, which is um, basically that, yeah, okay, you're happy now, but eventually you're going to stop being happy. This is this is actually closely related to the thing about the gods, because, you know, the the, the they say that the gods, when they stop, be, when they when their karma to be a god runs out and they lose their 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 conditions that are in place for them to be gods, that that suffering is the most intense suffering. It's more intense than than any being in hell. Because Yeah, but we don't even have to go there. We can just stay yeah, at yeah. a human level. And course, like yeah. eventually you're going to die. You're right. going to die. Yeah, all of us. I right? think part of the misconception is that, like, when you read, people read "life is suffering." The natural conclusion from people that speak English is that sentence means, like, plainly that basically everything is suffering. No, everything isn't suffering, right. but to live life, it, it's inherently includes suffering. Well, and first of all, there's no Sanskrit or any. I mean, I'm not aware of any like the words like life is suffering being an Asian original language formulation that that's something that happened in English for reasons that right. aren't, aren't clear to me. Poly, couldn't that be almost it's more just, translated like life is uncomfortable or life is uneasy? It's just that there is, there is this, well, that, suffering that's the question. Exists. It's the suffering fact, exists. Of, yeah, the there, fact there, of suffering. There is, suffering happens. Suffering exists. That's how to translate. That's a better yeah. translation of like the first noble truth. The and fact then, and, of sufferings is much, is like the best one. Yeah. And and then it's like, okay, well, so you have just to fin round out and we can continue. I'll throw it back to the floor, but just to round out these, these three types of suffering and, and they're all kind of closely related. There's one, which is just blunt suffering. There's the second, which is the suffering of change. When, when your circumstances change, you know, it, it, 
goes. And then there's what's called the all pervasive suffering of conditioning. And that is like, you could say, um, in a sense, like you would say life is suffering. Well, every moment you're alive, every moment that you're, the point is that every moment you're not a Buddha, there's something kind of nagging at you. There's some kind of little bit, even in your happiest, most blissed out orgasmic moment, there's some, unless you're like doing very advanced meditative practices, there's something not quite right. There's some even, little- Even then right. though, uh, even then the Buddha arguably, would say. Arguably, for sure. Yeah. Arguably, yeah. So anyways, I, I wanted to, so, that, so that's when you say like there is suffering or the suffering is a fact or the fact of suffering, the truth, the fact of suffering. These are better ways to think about it than like, oh, life is suffering and everything sucks all the time. That's not what, what's being said. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, those are the four noble truths. Um, that's the core of Buddhism. That's, um, and anytime you get lost in, uh, in this or that doctrine, Coming back to the four noble truths is always a good idea. <laughs> um, that's the the beginning and the end of what the Buddha taught. But to take it back to the historical context for a little bit, the Buddha taught for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years after he attained enlightenment. Um, and people ask what happened when the Buddha died. Well, his bodily, his earthly body expired um, and he entered, uh, is that one they say, like Parinibbana? Uh, Par Nirvana, yeah, in Sanskrit yeah. is Pari Nirvana. Yeah. Um, so the Buddha was fully enlightened and a full Buddha the entire time that he was teaching, uh, but he still had uh, his earthly body to walk around in North India with and to speak with and to teach with. Um, and then this body uh, passed away and um, the Buddha just just completely left it all behind and became you know, the Buddha. And by the way, again, since this is 101, we didn't actually say this. Uh, the Buddha comes from the root, I guess you could say Bud, yeah? Bud, yeah. Bud, Bud yeah, which just means awake. Um, yep. And so the Buddha is just the awakened one. I think basically everybody listening to this knows already, but we promised a 101. So um, just so it's very clear. Uh, yeah, this is why also, I mean, it kind of like, uh, I, I said the word enlightened earlier, and I mean, it sort of just rolls off the tongue because it's so common, but really like that way of putting it or even thinking about it is a kind like that's the, that's very tied in with this history that i mentioned of you know people in the west encountering buddhism which happened during the era that we call quote unquote the enlightenment um which is of course ideological in various ways and won't get into here but i know we're all enlightenment critics i think so-called enlightenment but the point is that um you know i try myself to to refer to like when i talk about what the buddha accomplished as awakening because awakening. that that's like what it i mean like at the like kind of root linguistic level what it was i mean that you know that the, the, there are light metaphors of course there are light metaphors but um the, the 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 central metaphor for the accomplishment of the buddha of what buddhahood is is awakening yeah yeah that's a, that's a very important point actually it's good so so when we say the buddha it just means the awakened one um yeah and basically says the buddha is woke that's absolutely he's the wokest <laughs> he is the wokest and it's interesting because i mean uh, the, the 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 metaphor of the awakened one is great because samsara and uh, especially in the tibetan tradition you often come across the metaphor of it being sort of like a dream in the sense that it's illusory yeah. and but we feel like it's very real just like how it is in a dream that's right i like to say that it's experienced as real but actually like a dream 
What? What? Once yeah, again, I I chat. Okay, so whoa, so the phenomenal world seems like a dream. All right, uh, I'm sorry. Now I've confused myself. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it it appears, it appears, um, it it is dreamlike, very much so. But. Whoa! I think we I think we blew our own <laughs> mind. Long, yeah. Oh shit! That's sorry, ever sorry. Had. I was I was talking into a mute. I think. Oh, you oh. were. Dude. <laughs> Say it again, John. Say it I again. That was. <laughs> no, it so appears it, to be a dream. It's experienced as real, but it is actually a dream. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you know when you're having normal experiences, they seem real, but their actual nature is empty. That's that's really all I'm saying. All right. So. Um, I promised that we would be able to come back to these topics uh, on a future episode. And I think it's important that we actually deliver what we promised, which is Buddhism 101. And that has to include how do people actually um, start, want, right? Before so before you do, well, do you want to get, you want to do that as part of the eightfold path or do you want, I mean, do you want to- Yeah, no, no, I'm just setting, the, I'm setting the whole thing. Okay. So okay, what okay. I'm saying is I want to go much more quickly through the next couple of topics. And then I want to give some practical advice for people and for everyone on the call and for everyone listening, we're by force, we're going to have to skip over some very important stuff, um, but we're going to hit some really important stuff. Um, and for the stuff we have to skip over, we'll hit it in a future episode. So uh, if you guys will allow me, I think I want to talk about the Eightfold Path briefly. I want to talk about, just so people understand, because we're always talking about it on the show, uh, the difference between Mahayana and Theravada. And DK, I'm going to make you promise that we keep it short on that, okay? Because, <laughs> <laughs> And then I do want to give some practical advice for our listeners, uh, to, you know, how to get started. So uh, since I did all that set up, I will... Uh, plow right into the, the noble eightfold path uh if the four noble truths are the super core of buddhism i would say that the eightfold path is like this the almost super core it's right there with the the four noble truths and we've joked about this before on this show and it's very true it's not a joke um the ancient indians not just the buddhists but the all the ancient indians love to make lots of lists of stuff so if you start studying buddhism you'll see lists of it's endless. There's so many lists. Um, but if you want to know which lists to worry about, uh, start with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is eight. Oh boy, I don't even know how to begin this. Eight factors of of awakening, I suppose. Um, and these are like things you can actually do as a human being to set yourself on the path uh, that the Buddha took. Right. Well, just to just very briefly, just to like set this up. So again, we talked about there is suffering. So the question is, there why why is there suffering? Which is the second noble truth that that, that suffering has a cause, and and basically these come down to defilement, klesha. That there's there's things that are wrong with our like exist. That we, we we our minds are messed up, our bodies are messed up, our karmic stream is messed up in various ways. The good news is the third noble truth, which is that suffering can be ended that that these things that are wrong klesha can be removed entirely in fact and when that happens basically you're that's what buddhahood is is the removal of all of these defilements so then the question is okay how do we do that how do we get rid of klesha how do we get rid of defilement how do we perfect our mind streams 
And the answer is the fourth noble truth of the truth of the path to end suffering. And that consists in the eight fold path. This is, there's eight aspects. There's eight sort of things to keep in mind on the path that, that allow us to remove klesha, that allow us to attain final awakening. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent summary. Um, and so just to give them for people, obviously, you know, you can look all this up, obviously, you know, just listening yeah. to us, you don't have to get it, but they are right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the first thing I'll say is that in my own experience, some of those were very clear what they meant right away. And other ones like, well, what's the difference between right mindfulness and right concentration and right resolve? Like, I don't know, right effort and right resolve. What's the difference, right? Um, they, they sound like they're just sort of repeating things, but if you get into studying them, it, there's eight of them for a reason. And the, those eight are there for specific reasons. And you really do have to pay attention to all eight. Um, we don't have time to get into each one of them in detail here, but for example, an easy one is right livelihood. Uh, maybe it's not easy to do, but it's easy to understand. Right livelihood is the idea that you shouldn't the way that you make your way in the world, like in modern terms, how do you make a living? Um, but in broader, in broader, in a broader sense, um, how do you live your life in society? Um, it, it it should not cause harm to other people. That's an example. Right speech is another one. Again, there's many details to it, but you can sort of understand. You shouldn't be lying. You shouldn't be causing people harm or yourself uh, harm with the words that you speak. Some of them like. Um, right effort, right mindfulness, um, right concentration. Those are actually equally clear if you look into them, but they're a little bit more difficult to describe um, in basic terms. But I will I will just say this um, in a less in a teacher sense, but just in a friend sense to you guys. I took a big step forward in my own practice of the Dharma when I took the effort to understand what each of these eight meant. Because it, like, for example, in my head, the difference between right mindfulness and right concentration was sort of, uh, I sort of understood it. And obviously I don't totally understand it yet. Um, but once I looked into it, I realized, wow, these really are sort of two distinct things. They're related, but they're distinct. Um, and I have to work at both of them. And that's when you really start cooking with gas in, in the Buddhist path is when you really pay attention to all eight of them. Would it be um, accurate to say mindfulness is almost more like awareness of the teaching versus samadhi being um, like the proper practice of it through meditation? Or yeah, is... I, I, I would say that that's a fair, you know, again, we could spend two hours talking about that distinction, but I would say that's a good way to summarize it. Perfect. Yeah, so that's that's the Eightfold Path. And um, that's, that's essentially what you're doing as a Buddhist. Uh, the Four Noble Truths are what you're trying to understand. But what are you trying to do, like as a human being who is a quote unquote Buddhist living a life here on earth in, in the current year, what you're doing is the, the, is the eightfold path. I think it's all pretty intuitive as well. You know, once you spend some time reading it, it becomes, you can develop an intuition uh, and just sort of like a sense where if you have a question, like, should I be doing this or not? You'll eventually get to the point where you can tell the uh, whether something you're doing is in accord with the eightfold path or not without having to sit there and think about it and analyze it. That you can get a feel for it. Which is DK would DK would you like to take a swing at virtue, concentration, and discernment? Because I think that's the other like core 
tree, you know, core list that I think is important. I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, but... uh, I'm not sure what to say. Um, just because what Storm said and what I was saying about the April path made me think of Sheila. Yeah. Um, and then I realized you can't really address Sheila without. Yeah. There's, well, I mean, the, the Sheila thing is interesting because, I mean, the, again, maybe this is a night. Maybe I'll take this opportunity rather than provide a direct answer um, to seg you into a the discussion about Mahayana and Theravada. Because while all of these things are very, very, they're foundational, right? I mean, this is kind of the oldest layer. And, the, and these are categories that are very influential, again, to the present day. They never stop being important. However, um, the idea of the Eightfold Path as like an organizing principle for Buddhist conduct um, is less important in the Mahayana than it is in for the Theravada. And for the Mahayana, the the kind of the, the, the more important or typical touchstone is what's called the Six Perfections. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So, so, but the, 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 the now. So, yeah. Let's, let's get, tell them. Yeah. Let's. Tell let's them get into this is. discussion of like a little yeah. bit of like what what's going on. So, so basically, to make a kind of very murky historical picture um, and and complex picture um, a little bit clear uh, and or or to like try to you know go over it quickly. Basically, um, after the Buddha passed into parad nirvana it's maintained that he didn't die because dying is something that you do when you're when you have the karma to die and the buddha no longer had any karma um so he didn't die he, he's his physical aggregates like vanished or something um he his disciples the the, the kind of earliest community of buddhist monks and nuns got together because they wanted to set okay well how are we going to proceed as a community and so they had what's called the first council and basically set some ground rules but, you know, India was very, um, it's a very big place. This is difficult to communicate. And so over time, there were like more and more issues that came up. And these communities were not in very close contact with each other. So they had another council um, because there were some, a lot of regional variation in practices. And to make a long story short, uh, the, the basically at a certain point that we're not really clear exactly when it was or exactly what, it, what, what, what happened, it was probably related initially to monastic discipline in particular um the issue of can monks directly receive gold and silver or not don't but maybe it also has to do with other stuff we don't really know the point is there was a big split there's a big split in the community that is that has really persisted to this day um it doesn't directly map that split doesn't directly map onto the mahayana theravada thing but it, in some ways it kind of like turned like it was the first schism and then there were like many 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 other schisms after that um and and basically at, at at the time you had these certain monks who um for various reasons were probably like doing meditation really intensely by themselves in the forest um who started having these visions and started writing them down and this is the sort of like the origins you could say of the mahayana tradition which in a sense these people were you could say like extremist fundamentalist types um that that they really took it to heart the idea that the buddhist path is like because because even for the for the these people who were non-mahayana even for this kind of the people that were not engaged in such intense meditation it was understood that the the buddha the historical buddha was like one of many buddhas and so it was this understood that you know anyone in principle could attain buddhahood now from their perspective and from as i understand it the modern what's called Theravada perspective. You don't need to do that. 
it's 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 completely unnecessary but they were like well i'm not satisfied with just kind of you know eliminating um my own defilement i want to set my mind on the um the total perfect goal and i want to do it because in, and this is, again goes all the way back really it's like well what what makes the buddha special what makes the buddha unique is that he taught the dharma like there was there was no buddha at the time there were beings were in need of a teacher and he manifested in a place where beings who you know were suffering could be helped by him by the buddha and so they said well i want to do that <laughs> basically it's like i want to be someone who manifests in a time and a place where there is no buddha so that i can be the one to teach the dharma to beings that are in need of help and so this was like the big split and the reason why it's called mahayana mahayana means great vehicle and and the idea is basically like rather than i mean this is kind of a rhetorical self-understanding or self-presentation of the mahayana um so take it to some extent with a grain of salt the idea is um it's great because it's not just about like i need to be liberated from suffering i have i am in this bad situation where where i have these problems and i'm gonna die it's i i'm in this situation but there's limit infinite sentient beings who are also in this situation and we are all going to get there together and and so there's becomes this ideal of what's called the bodhisattva um, or the being, the enlightened, the enlightenment being, or the, the the awakening, the being towards awakening. I mean, there's different ways you could kind of translate it or think about it. But the basic idea is like, as a bodhisattva, I am on this path, and I'm I'm going to purposefully delay my enlightenment. So the kind of like rhetoric goes, I'm going to delay my enlightenment until every other being in, in infinite space is liberated. So make sure that not a single one gets excluded. And that's the like the great intention, the great kind of motivation of the Mahayana. That is the core of Mahayana practice. I, I don't think it really differs all that much in 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 like how actual Theravada gets practiced on the ground. And I'm sure Aura can can step in on that for a second. But but yeah, it's um that is sort of like how the Mahayana understands itself is we have this infinitely vast intention to benefit limitless sentient beings without exception so there's two important things to understand one is the philosophical difference and the other is a historical difference right so for our 101 listeners um the mahayana school first of all there was a huge flourishing of, of buddhism in india in india proper um king ashoka most famously uh had a buddhist kingdom um in india but uh, most people probably know this already, but Buddhism is kind of a shadow religion in India today. There are some Buddhists, but India is not a Buddhist country, uh, basically at all. Uh, but there are other Buddhist countries outside of India, and uh, Buddhism, like Christianity, sort of spread out of its historical seat. And also like Christianity, its historical seat <laughs> doesn't really show that a religion anymore, but yeah. there are other people in other lands that are very intensely Christian or very intensely Buddhist. So um, setting the philosophical differences aside, the Mahayana school ended up spreading sort of north and east uh, into Tibet, into China, into Japan, uh, and also down south into Vietnam. But that came from the north, right? So it, it, if you look at a map, it, it went through China and Japan and then down to Vietnam. Um, and the what's called the Theravada school uh, and DK was very kind not to use the pejorative term Hinayana but that's what if anybody ever encounters the term Hinayana 
it's just a term that the Mahayanists used for the non-Mahayana Buddhism. So it just means lesser vehicle. Mahayana means great vehicle, and the Hinayana it, means... It really means like like inferior. Like Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, more, it's more than lesser. Vehicle. It, it's yeah, like yeah. the gross, like you know, manlet yeah. vehicle. Yeah, yeah, little, baby, yeah exactly. little tiny baby girl vehicle. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, among friends and among people that respect each other, it's kind of considered a pejorative term. So you don't call your Theravada friends Hinayanists, right? Because that's pejorative. But that is, that is a term that the Mahi, at least the classical Mahayanists would use um, to differentiate themselves. And that's- And we're gonna, we'll do a show on the Freudian implications of what you just said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, um, but the Southern, so that's called also the, the, the Mahayana is also called the Northern school. That's not, it's, you know, that's kind of a, a loose word, but anyway, uh, the Southern school, the Hinayana is also called, uh, more respectfully, the Theravada, which means the ways of the elders. Um, and those are the Buddhists who, it, it came through Sri Lanka and it had a lot to do with the, the Vinaya, which is the, the rules for monks. Um, but in, in the modern, again, for getting away from philosophy of it, uh, just talking about what our, our listeners need to understand um, when they're looking at a map of where what Buddhist countries are, are which school. It's called the Southern School because it went through uh, Sri Lanka into Burma and Thailand and also Cambodia a little bit. Um, and it's, uh, it's much smaller, I would say, in terms of adherence. Um, and to get back to the philosophical thing from the, uh, the, the, the Theravadas would say, yeah, what the Mahayanas are doing is cool and interesting and everything, but the Buddha, like the Buddha already was fully enlightened and he also taught for 50 years and we have his teachings. Right. And so we like those, you know, if you think that you need to like, there's also add, like suspicion add, of, you know, well, what are these things that you're saying that, you know, you, okay. So this in, you know, this cosmological Buddha appeared to you and started teaching you, things that don't sound very much like what the buddha you know what we know the buddha taught like what's up with that you know yeah 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 and you know you could phrase it as suspicion but you could also just phrase it as like uh disregard like right like we already like if the mahayanas believe that uh that becoming a buddha is the greatest thing and we have one historical buddha to learn from then instead of inventing something new uh how about we just listen to the one guy who actually knew like we know actually knew what he was talking about so anyway uh there's many you know the mahayana includes very disparate schools like uh it's gone on for a long time and so we have things like soto zen and tibetan uh vajra buddhism included in the same school as like pure land buddhism and you have uh very vinya intense stuff in sri lanka included in the same school as these sort of mystic guys in the thai forest tradition so like setting one up against the other is almost like a historical relic. I I say almost because I think there is an important difference between the schools, but also like it's for our listeners, I would just say it's not super important to get tied up in. I, I in think it's I, honestly, I think the Northern Southern thing, the, I heard that once from a kind of venerated. Um, the first time I encountered that it was from like a kind of very venerable Theravada master. And I, I it instantly struck me as like, yeah, I, I I don't know how much sense, particularly when you start looking at the things like the Thai forest tradition, how much sense it really makes, even historically, to, to make this kind of division along those lines. Um, also, in terms of doctrine and practice, there's a lot of crossover and, and most things end up being similar. It, it's really mostly like kind of a political, like a 
geographical, political, cultural distinction. So you can definitely it, say there's more a than anything else. Be made with like the the southern tradition having a, relying on the polytext, whereas the northern ones have. Adopted. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's the biggest yes. distinction I can think of. That's actually a really good point. Thank you. Um, that's actually an excellent point. Um, an interesting parallel to this is that there's a whole nother uh, northern southern split in Buddhism that happened in China, which is where you had uh, the southern school, which is roughly the line that descends from Weining, and that is today called the Rinzai school. And then you have the northern school, which is the Soto school. And the main difference is not, I mean, the whole thing is is sort of implicitly a doctrinal, but the big difference between those is that the northern school was said to be the gradual school and the southern school was said to be the sudden school. And this is talking about what is it like to to gain awakening? Is it does it happen suddenly or is it a gradual buildup? So it, it's, it seems to be like something that just happens in different historical contexts over and over with Buddhism, where there's these northern southern splits, which I've always found it very interesting that this has happened, I guess, twice or more times now. If I can evoke the the spirit of Saint Irene here um, and bring our churches together, one one thing that Kagyu asked long long ago, I think it was on our first episode maybe, um, was didn't the um, Thai forest tradition draw from the Mahayana? And at the time, I said, oh gee, I don't know, and I didn't know, and I've made it my point to um, look that up in the meantime, and it, it is in fact true. Um, when Ajahn Mun, who's sort of the the father of the Thai forest tradition, um, decided to reform Buddhism in Thailand. Uh, he was firmly within the Theravada tradition in terms of the Vinaya and everything, but he was looking for a way to bring more yeah, light and enlightenment and awakening um, into himself and into Thailand. And he did in fact look to um, Guys like Nagarjuna and uh, and other Mahayana thinkers. Well, it's um, important to understand in, in like doctrinally. I mean, in terms of internal kind of Buddhist things, and this is maybe a little bit more than one hundred and one, but I, I think it'll maybe make sense to people. Like, so when 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 um, Aura just mentioned the word Vinaya, and it's come up before. Vinaya is the monastic code of conduct. There's three basic divisions of Buddhist texts. There's the there's the sutras, which are the scriptures, or the typically discourses of the Buddha. You know, kind of very similar to Platonic discourses in a certain way where you have the Buddha usually as a kind of teacher giving, you know, someone asks him a question and he gives it a response. Sometimes there's some back and forth. Then you have the Abhidharma, which is basically like systemized categorization of like the elements of reality, long lists of like, here's this five sense faculties and six this and 18 that and this kind of stuff. Um, and then you have the Vinaya, which is a code of monastic conduct, a lot of which is stories, interestingly, and, and various things. But the point is that when, from an internal Buddhist perspective, what defines a particular Buddhist community is a, as a monastic community, which is like the foundational unit of Buddhist society, is the Vinaya. And, and there's different Vinaya traditions. But the point is, like, when you're talking about like Mahayana or Theravada, all this kind of stuff, like, you're not actually talking about anything in a certain sense that means something from a kind of very legalistic perspective within Buddhism, because what, what defines a Buddhist community is the code of monastic conduct. So it, it's very clear, actually, from, you know, archaeological and other kinds of evidence that in the early period when when these things were still being sorted out, 
like you would just have a big monastery, right? And some of the monks would be quote unquote Mahayana, and some of the monks would be quote unquote, you know, Theravada. Now they wouldn't necessarily be Theravada because that's another thing, but they would be non Mahayana, more mainstream, because in the beginning, Mahayana was very much a minority movement. Um, and but they would all be under the same kind of institutional auspices as monks of the same monastery following the same Vinaya. So when you're talking about like, you know, all these kinds of stuff. And so when you're talking about like, okay, what makes someone a Theravada? Well, what at the most basic foundational level, what makes them that is that they follow the Theravada Vinaya. So yeah. like, That's right. there's no, th from, from that perspective, it's like, okay, well you can embrace whatever like quote unquote metaphysics in terms of like, well, Buddhahood works like this, or I'm going to follow Nagarjuna or listen to, you know, there's no problem. There's absolutely no problem any more than there's yeah, a problem right. from a Mahayana perspective, you know, because all the Mahayana, there's a the big one in East Asia. There's there's the Dharma Guptaka Vinaya and in, in Tibet, it's the Sarvastivada Vinaya, um, which is a non typical like the Sarvastivada were like basically arch anti Mahayana. Like historically, these people were, were very much against Mahayana in general. But it just so happens that like in Tibetan Buddhism, the Vinaya that the Tibetan monks have is the Vinaya from that tradition. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I hate to even say this because it sounds like um, typical anti-West bullshit, but um, there haven't been holy wars in Buddhism um, like like the Thirty Years War. Like there, there, there just haven't been. Um, and that's not to say that that proves that Buddhism is better or whatever. My point in pointing that out is that if you look at these doctrinal differences in these schools, the Theravada and the the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and the, the different schools of Zen and everything, they are interesting. And it is, you know, if you're picking a tradition, it is important to understand these things. But if you're looking for like, you know, like Muhammad versus like Mohammedans versus Christians or something like that's just that's not really the way it works in Buddhism. And yeah. again, that's not to say like, oh, that's because they're so much wiser. Maybe they are. I don't know. But it's it's just to say that th they aren't those kinds of differences. It's not like the Catholic Orthodox divide at all. No, and I mean, the divide definitely is not really between Theravada versus Mahayana. I can think of like a very narrow example between like Tibetan schools of Buddhism having some conflicts in the past, but that's like extremely minor and nowhere near on the scale of what we saw yeah, and I mean, the same thing a, in zen like in zen like you you can find these stories and everything but that you don't have like war, like wars over this shit no frankly yeah and in um, zen, it's kind of implicitly understood that that at the deepest level it doesn't really the two there's no disagreement at the uh at like the basic level of truth between the two schools it's more like this is our style and this is your style you know well, saying? you've used the term before, and I know it's not your original term. It's an it's an old Buddhist term, but the idea of dharma combat, you know, like yeah. <laughs> the dharma combat is like, you know, using words and concepts and you know enlightenment and stuff <laughs> to yeah, to talk to each other. But yeah, well, sorry, go that, ahead, Kagyu, and go yeah, ahead, Storm. I mean, one of the sayings about this is the Buddha taught. I think it was like eighty four thousand variants of dharma, and potentially any one of them could be useful for some people. So. In theory, yeah. I mean, you could say that all schools of Buddhism could be legitimate and useful. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it depends on your your personal, you know, your personality quirks, what school is going to, like, be better for you to go into, you know. And But on Dharma combat, really, all Dharma combat is, it's it's just like uh, when you talk to your, your teacher one-on-one. -on -one. So it, it would be two people with some understanding or two people even with full awakening talking to each other and using each other's responses 
to sort of get a hold on the the particularity of how that person's awakening meshes with their conventional personality, right? So it's like it's almost like we're testing each other's understanding by poking at each other with language. And it's does that make sense? Yes. So, so I have taken on this role of um, moving the discussion along, and I'm going to do it again. But this time, after setting this up, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to make you guys talk. So <laughs> the la we're going to. I think we should do a second uh, episode, like Buddhism 102. Um, yeah, I agree. There's a it lot. Doesn't of have to yeah. be next week, but I think we should do this again. But before we move on today, um, I, I want to hit practical things. I, I want to get away from history and frankly doctrine a little bit and just tell people what they can do um, to understand Buddhism on a personal level and to begin practicing it. Um, I think that's a really important thing. And saying, oh, just just meditate. Like, I, I, I'd like to see if we can get a little bit more specific than that. So do you guys have anything to offer? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, it goes without saying, make sure you do your meditation practice. But one thing that's important, that's that's this is kind of a mistake that I've seen people make. And you can't just meditate and then get up from the cushion and go on like you normally would. You need to carry carry the Dharma with you at all times and have it be in your mind and in your in your being at all times. And just there's gonna you're gonna you're presented with so many opportunities every day to go back to that mindset, to take a step back. To, to pull yourself out of your delusions and look at stuff from that perspective. It's got to become uh, a constant habit and not just something that's, you don't want to be like uh, uh, churchianity style Christians who do basically what the fuck ever, except for on Sunday when they go to church and everybody's high and mighty. You want to do this all the time. It, you want it to become, you want to basically change your life at the core to, to be more based out of the Dharma. That's and, really good. And I'm, I'm going to contradict myself right off the bat. And <laughs> I said like, Oh, I'm not going to talk, but actually there is something actually I want to say, if you guys will allow me, um, what is meditation? So the woof, wading into a minefield here, but the very basic concept of meditation is that you sit down and you focus on one thing. It could be a meditation word. It could be your breath. It could be the concept of emptiness or anything. I find the breath to be easy. Um, and you basically observe the mind and at least in my tradition, uh, you give yourself something to concentrate on so that you can notice when you lose your concentration and you keep coming back, you keep coming back, you keep coming back. You're not going to get, you know, total enlightenment the, within five minutes of the first time you sit down unless you're, um, the sixth patriarch. So uh the idea is to observe the mind and to let it ah shit i'm already getting lost um <laughs> somebody take over well the type of meditation that i always recommend and the kind that i do is called shikantaza which is I, I, this is the japanese word not the chinese word because the chinese word is hard to pronounce and strange uh, so i like it, it what it means is just sitting and it's not this is not your casually like oh yeah you know I'm, here's the chair i'm just sitting no it's what you're and what by sitting is kind of a euphemism for being. So when you're in shikantaza, you're just being. And when you find yourself doing anything other than just being, you have to pull yourself back. So in this case, 
everything is taken as that subject of meditation. Um, you could say the 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 um, the dharmata is the subject of med meditation, or the reality itself, or however you'd like to your phrase for um, whatever word you use that includes literally everything. And so, what you'll find is that there'll be a distraction. You'll notice that you're distracted, and you'll be pulled back, and then you'll be pulled back. And then, interestingly, uh, the distinction between what's a distraction and what is something that's just included in the meditation by virtue of its existence goes away. And that's how you measure that progress. So that's that. I mean, it's hard for people to start there. Um, but one way to get there is to start doing what Aura suggested, start doing the breath meditation. And then when you can count up to 10 or 20 breaths without losing concentration, maybe you stop counting and you, you try to just um, make the concentration itself the subject of meditation, which is another good point is don't try and start out with super advanced high level stuff. You got to make your I'll, way through. I'll put, things. I'll put, um, no, you know, maybe put it in the show notes or something. There's a, there's a really, I, I, I think, um, man, again, there's a whole lot to say. I actually wouldn't even start with meditation necessarily. I mean, everybody's interested in it and for good reason, because it's very good to do for most people, especially if you have someone who can help you out. But, um, in the Mahamudra tradition, um, there it's sort of like, is an understanding that you start there's a, there's a kind of well-organized structure starting with just, you know, looking at something and then moving on to the breath. And then from there kind of beyond, um, as, as storm was, was mentioning, but, um, yeah, there's a, there was a, I believe 17th century, um, master whom I really like his name. It's Sele not so wrong And he's really just incredible. Um, just very clear, very lucid, very profound and helpful. And, um, he lays out, you know, a kind of program that you could follow, um, for meditation in terms of, um, you know, starting in a certain place. The, the, the big thing I would say though, is, is as I kind of alluded to before meditation is great. It's, um, it's number one, it's not sufficient. And number two, it's, um, the, the, the I don't know, probably this is a, is a Sanskrit and Tibetan thing rather than a Pali thing. But, um, we often say there's like view meditation conduct or view meditation conduct and fruition. And, and these things are really supposed to go together. So, um, as we're doing a kind of like one one thing and I'm going to have to hop off in a, in a minute, but, um, the, the idea is that basically like view that is the right view maybe you circle all the way back around from to the um to the four noble truths and the eightfold path like yeah we should have a right view part of that is philosophical part of that means understanding you know cause and effect causality karma is real part of that means you know yes reincarnation is real and there's you know this and that um but, but it's also there's a really intrinsic ethical component to that that like you know harming beings is bad helping beings is good helping beings doesn't just help them it's also like something that will help you and your path to like no longer suffer so that you know you end people's suffering you end your own suffering um we have to have proper view that's the foundation for um meditation but it's also the foundation for proper conduct and that you know our conduct when we're off the meditation cushion is a support for and an expression of our realization when we're on the meditation cushion. And these things should not be separate. They are not separate. Yes, because I mean, it's way too easy for some people to actually reify themselves with meditation as a component of some kind of hedonistic lifestyle. I mean, we see that as a huge component of this California Dharma stuff. Um, besides that, so I, I would say that probably would be helpful for some people to read into it or study it. Um, if you are, if it, if there is a, a tradition available to you, say you live near a Zen center or a Tibetan center, 
it probably would be helpful to go there and at least take um, instruction if you can. Uh, that's, I think, something that's really helpful. Um, now, I mean, in the longer run, if you really want to get serious into it, you do have to consider about taking refuge, which is the thing that formally marks you as actually becoming a Buddhist. But I mean, I would, of course, say that you probably should look into it for several months and just consider it. And before actually deciding to take that step, I, I don't know what if do any of y'all have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I think that it depends on your personality. I think for some people, taking refuge is, is actually a great first step. And for other people, um, it's something you can just do uh, that you'll feel compelled to do over time. Um, but I, th I think that you're absolutely right that seeking out a meditation center is a good idea. Uh, unfortunately, if you live in Europe or the United States or Canada, or Australia, uh, you're highly likely to run into a bunch of shitheads. Um, yeah, it's but, unfortunately true, and it's even more true with Zen in in those places. Yeah, so yeah. It could but, be okay if you're if I mean, because it tends to be that the, they haven't handed the keys over to the Westerners, and so the lamas can generally be relied on to be authentic. But um, it definitely yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. Yeah. It's one of those advantages. The, I guess. the main thing, and this is kind of like, you know, um, we touched on this before. I'm sure there's room to touch on it again. We actually got some some questions uh, that we'll, I think we'll have to address uh, next time. Um, we can maybe take some some of the questions again from, from um, people. But the main thing is to avoid secular mindfulness, <laughs> just like at all costs, especially if the person leading it uh, has an interesting physiognomy or an interesting last name. Um, these people are not reliable and they are not authentic teachers. Most of the, most of the time, I mean, they may claim to be Buddhist or may not, but, um, they, they typically don't frame what they're doing as, um, something that's like Buddhist in the sense of geared towards final awakening. Um, and you should take them at their word that that's not what they're providing and whatever it is that they are providing, it's not that. And that means that if you are interested in final awakening, that you should go elsewhere. Yeah, I would agree with that. And um, even if you think that final awakening uh, seems like really ambitious, which it is, um, e even the 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 nice steps along the path have to do with orienting yourself that way. I would say that because I don't consider myself awakened, but I do consider my life greatly enhanced by a serious pursuit of the Dharma. I I, I mean. I, I can't even begin to count the ways that like, I'm so much happier as a result of uh, being on the path. Um, it's been hard sometimes. It's it sucks a lot, but you know, yeah, life I sucks. Mean, I don't, I don't wanna, life is yeah, hard. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, just to say, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe a little bit of personal posting here, and and you know, we'll see if this gets me doxed. I would hope not. But uh, you know, I I had an extremely unhappy childhood. I was I was physically and verbally emotionally abused by my mother and and I was a wreck as a um as a as an adolescent and as a you know early 20 something type of person it was um it was very very dark um and and I I, I was I was smart enough to, to understand some stuff but also by virtue of that you know smart enough to fall into this kind of western nihilism trap and um 
and 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 in some ways uh i think part of the reason why i can't stand logo daedalus is on twitter is because i i see a lot of myself in him to some extent um the difference of course being that he never got out of it um but the point is that you know not uh, yet well not yet that's right thank you that's way to be optimistic yes um but the point is you know there's there's no solace in kandinsky and james joyce that's that's not actually ever going to get you out and and what did get me out finally after much effort and you know exploration and but which required honest intellectual engagement and humility and and baseline sort of recognition of like you need humility to start with at a certain level um was my encounter with the dharma and and sort of realizing like you know um that that yeah i mean i i came at it from this kind of highfalutin um philosophical high char hard charging you know um perspective and and then and what was interesting i mean and, and i i challenge anyone to to try to show otherwise if you you know i'm sure i would love to if you can but you know all the intellectual resources in the buddhist tradition you know i came at it with the most kind of cutting edge stuff and quantum mechanics and this and that i mean my as i mentioned i think before that's my sort of training that's my background that's my world and and of course it took some time but as i you know sort of investigated nagarjuna and, and abhidharma and because Buddhism has a lot to say about particles. Um, I was, I was eventually sort of the, the word is tamed in, in the way that it's a word that gets used in like the Tibetan word, you know, dual, like a, someone who's tamed and I was tamed. I was wild. I was, you know, I had a million things wrong with me and, and was very, very smart, but very unhappy. And um, I was tamed by, by the Dharma and, and it made everything much, much better. And it was without any kind of compromise on the intellectual side you know, um, any, anything like that, there was absolutely, um, I, I was, I was tamed by a superior intellectual tradition. Full stop. You know, while we're doing this, I want to give uh, my personal testimony too, if you don't mind, because DK yours is very moving and I, I'm sort of like a, an opposite case to you and that I had a very quiet, very just normal, um, easy, you know, rural childhood and all of my issues and problems that have caused me to be fucked up uh, are self-generated. And that was always a big problem for me. And I had sort of the same experience academically is that I was in this sort of like um, deconstructionist Nietzschean um, Wittgenstein influence. Just I was, I've always been really, really good uh, even pathologically. So at taking things apart and getting in touch with the Dharma, especially the Zen cones and, and getting a teacher and all that stuff. It was, I was able to sort of like turn that back around against itself and actually, and it was, since it was paired with this moral tradition and tradition of conduct, I was able to sort of like fix all these issues with myself, um, which have been very bad at different times and uh, really turn things around. And it was definitely exactly as you described, that it's you're encountering a superior intellectual tradition, you know, and and uh, just, that's the best description that can be given of it. Really, is that I was able to turn these destructive philosophical intellectual traditions back on themselves. It's something they're not willing to do, but in Nagarjuna and in the Zen material, there it was for me to do it. And that's probably, I would say, the single most important thing that's ever happened to me. Maybe only second to meeting my wife is getting in touch with the Dharma and pursuing it. I mean, going down the same route, like 
I, for a very long time, had these similar kind of issues where you read those people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, and you end up kind of swinging back in and out of, of this existentially depressed sense and trying to fill it with this, with heat, with just like this kind of Epicurean hedonism and, 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 and it, it never really succeeding at it. And the, what for me, I mean, the Dharma has been just absolutely take, taken care of all of that. It's been just incredibly transformative being able to step back from just this, these kind of meaningless things that we find ourselves in constantly. And that's, that's just been the best thing for me personally. It kind of reminds me of a specific koan where a monk asked Joshua, you know, and I've mentioned this one before, he asked him, what about it when I'm not taken in by anything? And, and Joshua responds, taken in, you're, you're already taken in. And that was, I was taken in by these things. Yeah, they offered me a way to take everything apart, but there was nothing there. And I discovered, you know, basically through this, that that lack is actually a profound freedom and a profound peace. It's not just a banal emptiness that you feel with drugs or whatever, you know, there's, there's something much better. You don't have to just not just buying stuff to try and make yourself. Yeah, I think, I, and I have to, I unfortunately have to leave with this. I don't know if, I mean, we're already, which is fine, a little late, but um, I don't know if you want to keep going, but I'm going to have to duck out. Um, we, can, we can close it up. But, but I just want to close with, with, with noting, you know, I think a lot of the resistance that people have that, you know, sort of, um, to, to the Dharma or just like the, the thinking about Buddhism generally. I mean, I'm not talking so much about Christians, especially not in our thing, but just generally at a cultural level is this, that, that, that third noble truth, right. That, that suffering has an end, that it is actually possible, that enlightenment is possible, that awakening is possible, that, that you don't have to suffer. You don't have to, none of us do. That's actually incredibly profound because I think that's what, you know, I mean, there's the, we talk about, you know, the, the, the cycle in a certain way sometimes. And, and yeah, I mean, people, people have, um, people have this idea like, oh, there's nothing more to life than cummies and Netflix. And, and I think a lot of us, even in, to some extent, even in this thing, like, you know, people would get irony pilled or, or just, you know, feel nihilistic or, or that there is no, you know, escape. And no, there is an escape. There is an end. There is an end to suffering. You can do it. It's been done. We have a we have a teacher who who did it and who can teach us how to do it. We have the technology. We have we can that's exactly right. So um and I think that's incredibly optimistic. I think that's extremely profound and incredibly optimistic and something that we you know if if nothing else if you take nothing else, and we could debate anyone who doesn't believe this or doesn't accept and that's fine. I'm, I'm I love debate and I'm very happy to argue or debate with whoever wants to to take this up. Not that anyone necessarily would, but I'd be happy to. Um, but the point is to keep it in mind, to understand that that it is possible, that there is an end, that these things are temporary, they're not going to be here forever, that, you know, we, our true nature is pure and perfect awakening, and, and we will one day, that is, it's inevitable. If we wanted to not attain that, we couldn't. We, it's, it's, it's who we are fundamentally. I love well, it, man. Take us out. That's right. I uh, thank this. Thank everyone in the chat and generally for um, participating in this uh, Buddhism 101. We will return next week with 102 and hopefully get to some of your questions, which have been really great. Um, until then, uh, I am Dharma Kirti, your kind of quasi host, and uh, we will catch you next time. Keep playing, Storm. Take care, everyone. <laughs>